Six days since a COVID-positive Sydney visitor returned to Australia. After a busy weekend in Wellington, Wellington's now in its third day of Level 2 alert. No positive cases here so far, despite hundreds of people identified as contacts. Meanwhile, Sydney City and some of its suburbs have gone into lockdown with, at last count, I think 65 cases linked to the Bondi cluster. And our visitor, or one of the pair of visitors, um, it is confirmed, does have the Delta variant. Virologist Dr Chris Smith, now my hi to my Anna. Welcome back, Chris. Hi, Kim. Good to be back. Very nice to talk to you. Now, explain something to me. I've checked out with other people whether this is a stupid question, and they tell me it's not, so here we go. We had two visitors from Sydney. One of them uh, was COVID positive. One of them is COVID negative. The COVID positive one has the very infectious Delta variant. The companion of the very positive Delta variant person is negative. And yet we're testing, testing, testing because it's so contagious. How can the companion be negative? I've got a friend who's a GP and he has a wife, two children. And in that family, a couple of people tested positive. The others tested negative, not for the Delta agent, but for the ancestral, let's call it classical coronavirus strain. So it is not a given. Some people are good at spreading the virus. Some people are good at catching the virus. And it's not a given if you hang out with someone, you're going to catch it. Uh, it, it is a given, though, that if you're shedding it, you can infect people. And who those are, we don't know. And that's part of the headache, because half the time people have no symptoms of this coronavirus. Half the time they do, but only a fraction of the time they become severely unwell. So it's capable of hiding in plain sight. And in some people being very easy to catch in others, they just don't seem to get it. It doesn't make sense, does it really, on the face of it? It seems quite, you know... Um irrational. It's irrational, Chris. Well, it sort of makes sense in the sense that um, we are all individually unique. And that means that in the same way, we all look different. Biochemically, we're all a bit different. And these viruses are exploiting our biochemistry and our cells in order to grow. Viruses are the ultimate parasite. They're an obligate intracellular parasite. They're nothing more than an infectious bag of genes. And in order to make new viruses, that infectious bag of genes has got to latch onto a susceptible cell, persuade that cell to take the virus that's latched onto its surface into the cell, and then when it gets inside, the virus has got to unleash its genetic cargo and hope that the genetic program ignites and the bomb goes off the right way in the cell in order to hijack that cell successfully and read the genetic code of the virus and set up a virus factory in that cell and then turn the cell into a production line for new viruses. That's a lot of if, buts and maybes. And as a result, not every virus particle is any good at doing that. Not every cell is very good at being infected like that. And not everybody who is infected is shedding large amounts of virus. So there are so many moving parts to this equation. It makes it really hard to predict. Now, some viruses are like that, but others, of course, are not. Uh, some viruses are incredibly infectious and they've got it down to a fine art. And uh, at that end of the spectrum, we're dealing with something like measles, for example, which because measles is so, is so nasty, it gives you a lifelong immunity to it, 
the virus has had to compensate for the fact that it leaves in its wake someone who's either dead or better and immune for life by being ultra-infectious so that it can surmount the barrier posed by a largely immune population. So measles does, doesn't miss the target very often, but other viruses do. But the advantage of missing the target from time to time and this sort of ability and the ability to change and shapeshift is that they can keep coming back, is that they can continue to evolve and change and move, and that means they can continue to exploit us ad infinitum. And that's what flu does, it's what HIV does, it's what this coronavirus is doing. As we know, both our visitors had received their first of two vaccinations. Is it possible to mistake the antibodies produced by the body in response to the vaccination for infection by the virus? Certainly, if you interpreted the results of the test wrongly, you, you could make that mistake. Okay. But actually, but it's always clear, is it? Right. Don't muddle up antibodies and antigens. Antibodies are what your immune system makes when it has seen a threat, been infected with something, or it has had a vaccine. But this is how you tell them apart. When you are infected by the virus for real, you get the real deal. You don't just see one small part of the virus and make a collection of antibodies against one small part of the virus. You see the full house of cards, the entire shooting match that virus is capable of deploying against you. So your immune system actually makes a whole constellation of antibodies, which include antibodies against the spikes on the surface, antibodies against the inner coat of the virus, antibodies against bits of the virus actually that aren't visible from the outside. So you make a big swathe of immune responses. When you see the vaccine, though, you only make an immune response against whatever's in that vaccine. So we can discriminate on the basis of antibodies whether someone has just been vaccinated or, or has been infected. You couldn't tell uh, one from t'other necessarily, but you could tell because a vaccinated person would have a very limited repertoire of antibodies, whereas people who have had the infection for real have antibodies against things that are not in the vaccine. And that's how we tell them apart. We have had some people a bit confused in the UK because they've taken part in a special trial that's being run to follow up people who are being vaccinated or people who are uh, being used as almost canaries in the cage, uh, in the coal mine, and they're being tested periodically to see if they are catching coronavirus. Some of them have uh, had their vaccines and then they've written to me saying, I don't understand, I've had, I've had my vaccines and I'm still testing negative for antibodies because the antibody tests that they're using look for the inner coat of the virus, not the spikes that are in the vaccine. So, hang on, if people are talking about tests for people to find out whether they've been vaccinated, doesn't that make that difficult? No, because, again, you, you can use tests which are discrete for the spike and, and tests which are discrete for the inner part of the virus. And if you have antibodies against the spike that is in the vaccine, but not against the inner part of the virus, you have seen the vaccine. If you have antibodies against the inner part of the virus that's not in the vaccine, you have been infected at some point and made a natural immune response. Okay. Um, what about the efficacy of the current batch of vaccines against variants? At what point do we say, okay, we've got a variant that is sufficiently different from the original COVID-19 that we need a whole new batch of vaccinations? There's a couple of ways to tackle this. And uh, the simple way is you watch and see what happens. So having detected this variant, you then see how it spreads in a population. You see how it appears to behave 
and you see how it interacts with people who've had no vaccine, one dose of vaccine, two doses of vaccine or vaccine months ago. From that, you draw some kind of inference, being very cautious about taking into account age, for example, and you can make some kind of deductions about the likelihood of the ability of that virus to surmount vaccination at different stages. The other way you do it, and we don't just use one or t or t'other, uh, you tend to do both of these. The other is you look at the biology of the virus, you grow it in a test tube, you look at the constellation of genetic changes and you ask where in the virus have these genetic changes cropped up, which bits of the virus do we infer are, are being changed by these, these variations in the genetic code, and you do the experiment. We then bring both of those sorts of data together to make deductions and predictions about how this virus will behave. And at the same time, you're monitoring what fraction of the infections in a population are accounted for by this variant versus existing variants. So, for instance, in the UK, last Christmas, uh, doctors and scientists reported that they had seen the emergence of this new thing they were dubbing the Kent variant, now called Alpha. And it was accounting for a tiny fraction of the cases that we had in total. But it was on the radar screen. By a few weeks later, it was accounting in some parts of the country for one in five cases that were being diagnosed. And by January, across the entire country, it was accounting for 99% of cases that were being diagnosed. We could therefore consider the trajectory of that variant against the, let's call it classical variant we had before, and the fact that it was overtaking and crowding out the existing form of the virus argues it had some kind of reproductive advantage. And you can then ask, and what would be the impact of vaccination against that, etc. And you learn how the variants of the virus interact with vaccinated individuals. So as we speak, are different vaccines being prepared well, at the moment, what we know about the so-called Delta variant is uh, also goes by the Indian variant subtype 2, because what we originally were calling the Indian variant turned out to have a number of different subtypes to it. The dominant one that has this reproductive and spreadable advantage, which appears to be maybe 60-70% more transmissible, that one, we've actually now got quite a lot of data on how it interacts with people who have been vaccinated. And the results are really encouraging. People were justifiably very concerned to start with, thinking, well, oh dear, is this thing which has got 13 to 17 different genetic changes in it compared to the Kent alpha strain of the virus? Are we going to see a, a horror show here? And in fact, the data began to emerge quite quickly that people who had been vaccinated were very well protected. There was initially one very encouraging case of an outbreak in a, in a care home in the UK where a number of residents did catch the Delta agent. They did become unwell a bit, but they ended up only briefly a couple of them in hospital. No one was severely unwell. No one died. Had that cohort been infected previously without any vaccination, you would have expected a, a quite a significant mortality rate in a bunch of people who were of that sort of age. So therefore, that gave us encouragement that the vaccines were going to work. And, and we've now clarified that we've got pretty strong, robust data that says if you've had two doses of either AstraZeneca or Pfizer's vaccine, you've got north of 92% chance of being protected against severe disease were you to encounter this new variant. So at the moment, there's no reason to think that the vaccines aren't worth continuing to use and to continue to vaccinate populations with them. But governments, scientists, politicians, they've got their eye on the fact that these sorts of variants can and do crop up. So there are already conversations taking place with the pharmaceutical companies. Um, the um, UK government were having a conversation at Oxford uh, with AstraZeneca recently to 
plan for an update to the AstraZeneca vaccine to reflect some of the changes that are in these variants so that if we need to, we can roll out variants uh, or variant-proof vaccines in the autumn. Let's deal with something that's bonkers for a moment. Um, I've received a text from Joanna in New Plymouth, and she says she's received a pamphlet in her mailbox, and I'm sure she's not the only one if this is the case, which says that the Pfizer vaccine is not normal because it uses novel technology. Chris, over to you. Um, this technology has been developed over many years, and it's just that it's been deployed against this new pandemic to help us to solve it. But the technology on which it's based is very well understood and it has been tested and it almost got rolled out in the fight against Zika virus. But in the course of developing uh, vaccines against Zika, it was uh, explored and further optimised. So we're now in a very fortunate position that we had access to this sort of technology just in time in order to do this. But it is certainly the first time this technology has been used in humans. But uh, any question about safety, we are reassured by the fact that there have been very comprehensive trials before these agents were used in people more broadly, and that now, nigh on, we think around the world, not just of Pfizer's vaccine, but of all vaccines, about two billion doses have been deployed. And we haven't seen the kind of wide-scale pandemonium that you would expect if there were the sorts of side effects that people are saying uh, are associated with these things. So we're very reassured by the very strong track record of safety now uh, that these vaccines are delivering, first and foremost. And secondly, the fact they are working, the fact that you can now see 92% protection on the part of an elderly person who's received two doses of these vaccines when challenged with an infection that would a year ago have claimed 10 to 20% of them. I mean, that's really encouraging. Somebody else suggests that it is the vaccines that are increasing the number of variants. Therefore, why are we vaccinating? Which is a mm. kind of a circular argument. Can you crack that one? Well, the, the simple way of looking at that is to say, where did the Indian variant, which well, what we used to call the Indian variant, come, come from? It came from India. What fraction of the population of India with 1.4 billion people have been vaccinated? About 1%. So, no, there's no evidence that the vaccines are emerging there. They're emerging in places where there are very significant numbers of people who are infected. It is the number of cases of infection. It is the turnover of the virus. It's the rolling of the genetic dice. Every time the virus grows, it has a, a set problem. Uh, probability that it's going to make a genetic spelling mistake or a mutation and there is a chance that some of those mutations may well confer on those viruses some changes that enable them to become more optimal at growing in us and of course they're the ones that are going to grow what makes that happen it, it happens where you've got a lot of virus activity and that's why a short-term goal is to yes get get everyone's house in order get countries sorted out and get get people vaccinated but in the long term get the world vaccinated because there are seven billion people on earth so far who either haven't had and therefore are immune to or haven't been vaccinated against this new coronavirus that's a lot of people to, to disclose a lot lot of variants that could make our lives very uncomfortable for a lot of years to come. So we really do have a race against time now to get as many people vaccinated as possible. But they do make a sensible, reasonable point, which is that we do know that 
when we vaccinate on a, a, a massive population scale, we are applying what we call selective pressure to the virus. You're, you're basically pushing it into a genetic corner. It's a bit like um, if yes. you close off some of the roads, it only has one road to go down. So you are effectively herding, herding sheep. And that, but what that does have the advantage of doing, as we are learning with the flu, for example, it forces the virus to adapt in ways that you can predict because it has fewer degrees of freedom. And in that way, you can anticipate what it might do next. And therefore, you can have up your sleeve various other vaccines ready to go or, or f- which have been developed for that sort of eventuality. So you can actually predict the moves of the chess game ahead and be ready to head it off in the future. Um, I'm not suggesting that people should stop scanning and washing hands and wearing masks, which continues to be a contentious area. I've received a text from somebody absolutely outraged at the suggestion that they should wear a mask in a taxi. I mean, whatever. But the fact that this individual from Sydney who has tested positive for Delta had a partial vaccination, would that account for the fact that his partner did not um, pick up the COVID and possibly also account for the fact that we have seen no infections in Wellington so far. Uh, as I say, um, there are some people who are very good at spreading infection. There are some people who are very good at catching infection. If you've got just one case and you get somebody who's not very infectious or they weren't infectious at all, because obviously we don't know the precise timeline of when a person is infected. You can only estimate that. And the range of incubation periods is is quite broad. Uh, The average is about five days, but it may be as long as two weeks. And for that reason, because the trajectory differs in different people for for various reasons, for instance, if you've got another cold on board and you, you catch the new coronavirus, because you've got another cold on board, your body is already in an antivirus state and it's producing lots of various immune signals which suppress the ability of viruses to grow in the body that's why you're told if you're having a live vaccine don't go and have a live vaccine for say chicken pox or measles or something when you've got a virus on board because your body's already in an antiviral state and it won't and the vaccine won't work properly it's the same sort of thing here that may have an impact on on how the virus grows there was a, a report a few months ago saying could people who catch the common cold be less susceptible to coronavirus and that's sort of what they were getting at they were showing that in Infection with rhinovirus, which is a cause of the common cold, suppresses the growth of the coronavirus probably by putting our body into an antivirus state. So we're we're less fertile grounds for infection and, and replication of the new virus. So that might account for some of the variation. We 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 just don't know. There are so many degrees of freedom, so many moving parts. Very hard to know exactly when you try and unpick this story, uh, what's gone on. People are asking me about ivermectin, Chris. What do you know? Well, ivermectin is actually an old drug. It's an antiparasitic agent. You use it to treat certain types of worm infestation. And people have subjected this to a number of analyses. And it's been going on for about a year or so uh, because one of the things that began to happen very early in the pandemic was people began to scrutinise various drugs to see if there was evidence of efficacy because we know that certain drugs have what are called off-target effects. In other words, if you take a a drug that's say for diabetes or to kill worms or an antibiotic that does a particular job in the body just by chance in some cases a side effect of that drug is also to affect another disease outcome 
And so people are aware of this possibility. And so they've been looking very hard to see if there are any relationships between people who happened by chance to be taking certain drugs and caught COVID or didn't catch COVID uh, more or less frequently than you would expect by chance. When you see those sorts of relationships, it can point towards mechanisms. And that's very important because you can then understand how the disease works, who it affects and possibly novel ways to manage or treat it. It emerged that there might be a relationship between ivermectin and acute coronavirus infection so people don't become so severely unwell there have been a number of studies now that are looking but none of them sufficiently powerful enough to completely rule this in or rule this out so at the moment the jury is still out on this one but i don't think the case is sufficiently compelling or at least i haven't seen really compelling data to say that this should be put up there alongside agents like dexamethasone the steroid that the recovery trial at Oxford University disclosed as, as being beneficial, uh, or tocilizumab, one of these immune-modulating antibody therapies, or the antibody cocktail that uh, has been prepared by Regeneron, for example, that Donald Trump was treated with. Those things do show very strong efficacy. I don't think we've got enough solid data yet on ivermectin to know where we stand on that one. Singapore is taking a, a, a particular approach to COVID. It's got no goal of zero transmission. Um, it doesn't insist on quarantine or isolation for contacts of people with COVID. It intends to treat it like the influenza each year. Yep. What do you think? I, th I think that's probably the way to go because um, the reason that we're seeing such a dramatic impact of the new coronavirus is precisely because it is a new virus. It's a new incursion into humans. We've never seen the likes of this before, so everyone is susceptible. Everyone is immune naive. In other words, they have no pre-made immune response to it. And therefore, you've ended up with a big population of older people who are more vulnerable to any kind of infection. And when they catch it, they become severely unwell. Younger people, much more trivial infection. Left to its own devices, what would have happened is that the entire world would have gently caught this infection. There would have been loss of life on a dramatic scale. But what would have been left in the wake of that would have been a huge population of people who already therefore had immune memory against the agent. And if they caught it again when they were old, they would have a trivial infection. I mean, that's our prediction. That would that would be what is actually currently happening with the flu. And the reason that we don't die of the flu at the rate that um, we, we would see happening with coronavirus is because all of us have had the flu multiple times in our life. So even though the flu changes a bit, we have partial immunity against it, which gives us partial protection. So at worst, you get a flu illness at best you don't even know you've caught the flu you've just updated your immunity and so what i think singapore is saying is we accept this is an endemic infection it's not going to go away we cannot get rid of this thing uh, that is a fact and um, we therefore know that the best way to manage diseases that are in that situation like the flu is to have a surveillance program on an international scale which we've got to have a way of tracking the evolution of the agent to predict its next move which we've got to have vaccines which can be made at scale updated when necessary and then offered to those people most at risk who can be identified which we've got and in that way we manage the morbidity and mortality risk and we accept that there will be some case burden in society which we have to learn to live alongside and and i think ultimately that's going to be the way that the vast majority of countries that accept that for for all the reasons of practicality geography and so on that that they have to accept in the uk where you are of course delta has infected more young people and increased the risk of hospitalization what would be the reason for that 
Well, we're, we're currently celebrating, if that's the right word to use, about 15,000 cases a day at the moment. And those are the ones we know about. Um, 15,000 a day. Correct. And you can confidently oh. double that because remember I told you at the top of the programme that about half the cases are asymptomatic. Now, if you trigger a test because you have the holy trinity of fever, cough, loss of smell and taste, and we actually realise Delta produces quite different symptoms, actually. So we're, we're going to be missing a whole bunch more tests that we're not doing. You can probably double the number of cases. So we've probably got 30,000 or so cases a day going through the community. But what we haven't got is 1,500 deaths a day, which we did have at peak earlier in the year. What we've got is 11 to 18 deaths a day. And that number hasn't radically changed. And this gives us enormous confidence that, in fact, because we've got double doses of vaccine into a very significant proportion of the population now, like two thirds, and those are chiefly among the most vulnerable members of society because we started at the top of the age range and have worked our way down. We're now at the stage where we're inviting anybody over the age of 18 to come and get vaccinated. And there's very, very healthy uptake. As a result, we are getting cases, but we're not getting casualties. And I think probably a lot of countries are looking at this and saying, yep, there's the evidence that you've got a lot of circulation of the agent, but it is not translating into the most vulnerable people who previously it could have been a, you know, the death knell, as Boris Johnson dubbed it. It, it is a bit being held back. Now, why we've got a problem with a younger people and the Delta agent is causing problems in that younger cohort. About six or eight weeks ago, I, I was I was on the national radio and television in the UK. I was saying in a few weeks time, we are going to have a big problem because what we've done is for very correct reasons, prioritised treating with vaccines and protecting the most vulnerable members of society. But because the Delta agent needs two doses of vaccine, the decision was being made to focus efforts to double vaccinate people who are in that sort of middle risk category. And I pointed out that, in fact, what we've got is a very significant slug of the population, probably about 20 percent who haven't yet been vaccinated, who are the younger ones who are more likely to be at school, be at college, be on public transport, be in work, be at parties, be in contact with other people and they're going to cause all the transmissions because they're so well networked. And lo and behold, that's exactly where we've ended up. So now there is a big push on to try to, to offer protection to those as fast as possible and, and try and um, head off this surge. And that's why we have deferred by four weeks what would have been Freedom Day at the beginning of the week on the 21st, which is a couple of days after Boris Johnson's birthday, uh, when I'm suspect he was hoping to have a big celebration. Um, we're, we've got to wait another four weeks before we we're able to consider having our freedom back. We have in New Zealand... Um what's generally agreed to be a suboptimal rollout of the vaccination. And it's patchy and it's um, often uh, unpredictable. A bit like the disease, really. Anyway. <laughs> yes, indeed. The only predictable the thing about coronavirus is its unpredictability. Uh, yes. What is the, the best space between the first shot of Pfizer and the second shot of Pfizer vaccine? Well, if you remember, when the trials were done, they used a month and they selected a month between the two vaccines because they needed something that would be sufficiently quick to get the data out fast enough so the regulatory bodies could consider the evidence and approve the vaccines. There was then enormous heat applied to the UK government when they said, well, hang on, we're going to spread this to 12 weeks, three months between vaccine doses. Our reason for doing so is a lot of the heavy lifting of the vaccination is done by the first dose. If we widen the scope to 12 weeks, we can actually give more people who are vulnerable 
their first dose, achieving a greater level of population protection than if we superserve with two doses a, a more focused subset of the population. Many people uh, created an outcry and said this was you know, akin to war crimes in some cases, and they were th- making all kinds of threats and noises. It turns out that was one of the savviest things that was ever decided because the evidence has emerged really strongly that the bigger the gap you can leave between vaccines, the better the immune response. And so actually 12 weeks is, is de rigueur as a, a good time to leave it. But they, uh, this has been, the guidance has been slightly adjusted in recent weeks. And so what our JCVI, that's the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation in the UK, are now saying is if you're over the age of, of um, 40, you should have uh, two doses eight weeks apart. If you're under that age, you should have two doses 12 weeks apart. Now, the reason for doing that is that if you've got a threat for a certain age group, it makes sense to ward off that threat as fast as possible. So having people double vaccinated and getting the best protection that you're going to get after eight weeks makes sense in terms of saving lives. For younger people for whom the risk of uh, catching severe coronavirus infection is really low, it actually makes sense to just develop the most resilient and robust immune response. Um, And the optimal way to do that is to wait 12 weeks. So at the moment, the guidance is uh, 12 weeks is really good, but you can compromise on eight weeks if you want to get to that level of protection that bit sooner in a more vulnerable group. Thank you, Chris. Nice to talk to you again. Nice to talk to you too, Kim. Smith.